Good afternoon and welcome to the July 11th, 2022 Major Mondays webinar series. Today we're going over how to prosecute and prove uh, third parties' causes of action. Live question and answer as always, so feel free to post your questions and we will get to them at the conclusion of the webinar. So let's dive in here. We're gonna start with subrogation in New York. So the pertinent uh, portion of section 29 that we're dealing with is subsection two. Uh, when you can serve notice under section 29.2 uh, is six months after the claimant has taken compensation. Uh, if you wanna go into the definition of that, um, there's a big description of it in the risk transfer handbook, which I can send you a copy if, uh, if you would like. Uh, but there's a lot of case law on when it's taking compensation or an award of compensation. Um, or one year after the date of loss, whichever is sooner. So upon 30 days notice to the claimant, uh, serving this 29-2 notice will operate as an assignment of, a cause of, of the claimant's cause of action. And that language is actually kind of important. So um, there are cases saying the assignment is absolute and the claimant only retains uh, an inchoate interest in a prospective recovery. In other words, once that 29-2 notice is served and it's done properly and our rights are perfected, uh, the cause of action is now ours. It no longer belongs to the claimant. So let's go into some other aspects of section 29.2 here. Um, the notice has required language. It actually must advise the claimant that a failure to pursue the action within 30 days uh, will operate as an assignment. So you have to warn them that this is coming. Uh, the section 29.2 uh, requires paying two thirds of any excess recovery to the claimant. Uh, the board will estimate total benefits in determining what an excess recovery might be. Um, it can be served either via certified slash registered mail or personal service. Uh, as a side note, I do always recommend personal service if you're actually intending on ultimately filing the case, uh, just because that affidavit of service is a lot nicer to have in hand for purposes of proving your compliance than a certified mail green sheet, for instance. Um, section 29.2a, I just want to point out, you can only recover against a non-covered person when the motor vehicle uh, carve-out applies. Uh, otherwise, you're just going to be seeking loss transfer on that first 50000 If you have any questions about how that carve-out works, there are several other webinars on it. And again, I go into detail on the risk transfer handbook. You can always feel free to email me as well. So we'll touch on New Jersey now. Uh, so we're looking at subsection F of section 40. Note that this is not an absolute assignment like in uh, New York, but Section 40F does mention that any compromise will constitute a bar to any further claim by the petitioner against a third party. The timing is 10 days written demand, one year after the date of loss. So we're both looking at the both Section 29.2 and 40F are looking at this approximate year-long time frame. Um, just as in New York, the petitioner really has no right to participate in the subrogation action once it's filed. We don't need their consent to settle. We don't need to consult them on any aspect of it. Uh, it's a shame this El Hulu versus Lipinski Outdoor Services case isn't uh, a published decision because it's really the only one that uh, elucidates what goes on with the Section 40F subrogation and the petitioner's involvement. But uh, it's instructive nonetheless. It's an appellate division decision. I recommend checking it out. Other aspects of Section 40F. Uh, if you're similar to Section 29.2, if your recovery is in excess of the lien plus your expenses of suit, the excess is payable to the employee. Uh, it permits the right of the employer carrier to have a dismissal for lack of prosecution set aside within 90 days. So uh, in New Jersey, you are required to um, upload proof of service of the summons and complaint 
and if you have not affected service properly and provided proof of service, the case does eventually get dismissed for lack of prosecution. There are other reasons a case might get dismissed for lack of prosecution, but that's a common one, is failure to prove service of process. Uh, and this actually gives us the right to step in and get that set aside upon motion within 90 days. Uh, there is a limitation in Section 40G, so this bar on suit goes both ways, depending on who compromises the action. Um, the employee settling the case or filing suit before us uh, bars the claim of the employer or carrier. All right, so I mentioned this approximate one-year time frame applying in both cases. Some of you might have heard this colloquially referred to as the one-year letter. So if you hear that term, this is what it's referring to generally. Um, I will note again that both of the different letters have very specific required language. So a standard, you have failed to sue, it's been one year, go ahead and file, or we're going to do it, generally isn't going to be enough to preserve your rights, especially if you can't prove that you ever served it. Um, so the 29.2 and 40F notices are sometimes called the one-year letter. Uh, there are several benefits to serving in every claim. Uh, number one, preserves your statutory subrogation rights. If Say you're coming up on the statute of limitations and um, the employee still has not sued. You don't have to scramble to get this done. You're able to just go ahead and uh, sue. Um, <clears throat> it pushes uh, the act, it pushes action from the petitioner or claimant's attorney uh, to either back out or file. So we call this uh, lighting a fire under them. Um, it creates powerful leverage in negotiating reimbursement. Here's what I mean by that. There is no greater threat than uh, I will not take a third, a third, a third. I will take everything minus this nominal lien waiver. And if that's not acceptable to you, I'll just go and settle with the defendants directly. Sorry. And then your client won't get a dime because it will bar your action. Um, that is extremely powerful leverage to say, I'm just going to step in and subrogate. I don't need to negotiate this reimbursement with you anyway. Um, again, just note that under Section 40G, if their action has already been filed, um, it's kind of a hollow threat, but uh, it is uh, pretty powerful leverage. Um, and the sooner you recover, the sooner you can assert potential offset rights if you have an excess recovery. So why might an employee not sue? It should be free money, right? You have a third party cause of action, you're getting comp. Uh, why wouldn't the employee go forward with a civil case? So by far the most common reason. Damages are not enough to justify an attorney's fear prosecution. Um, you know, most of these third party action attorneys, if they're only looking at a recovery of, uh, you know, 10 grand or so, they might say that the case is not worth pursuing because, you know, there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Uh, very common rationale from personal injury attorneys. Uh, in New Jersey, the case is barred by the verbal threshold. That's in New Jersey motor vehicle accident cases. The verbal threshold is, um, you know, their no-fault law and basically bars soft tissue injury cases is the best way to think about it. Um, they have specifically enumerated injuries, death, dismemberment, loss of a fetus, permanent limitation, etc. Um, but there's a lovely decision from the appellate division and then eventually um, from the Supreme Court, New Jersey Transit Corp, ASO, Mercogliano versus Sanchez, which says we're not subject to the verbal threshold. So in a lot of these soft tissue injury cases, maybe just like a disc bulge and not a herniation in the back, the petitioner will not file because they can't, but we actually can. And we've had a lot of success doing that in recent years ever since those decisions have come out. Uh, no proof of serious injury or damages exceeding basic economic loss. Uh, that's in New York. Again, there's that 50K carve out. 
inability to prove fault or liability. In other words, a lack of evidence. You know, maybe they didn't preserve uh, any proofs they had following the accident. or Maybe there's just a no, not enough based on the facts to get over a comparative negligence hump. Uh, or what sometimes happens, the employee just wants to return to status quo uh, and they're unwilling to prosecute. This does happen more often than you think. They, you know, they treated for their injury, they got over it, they got their permanency classification, they're back to work, they're just not a litigious person. This does happen um, more often than you would actually think. Potential pitfalls in subrogating. Okay, um, failing to note the applicable statute of limitations. Uh, that is definitely something I would be doing from the outset of my case. I'm gonna go over some common ones in a second. Uh, note that you do not have section 40 rights, reimbursement or subrogation in so-called Title 59 claims against public entities. Uh, that does not apply to the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, however. That's a joint shared entity between both states. But in New Jersey cases against public entities, there are no Section 40 rights. Uh, the carrier or claimant must timely serve not uh, the notice of claim in municipal liability cases or notice of intent uh, in New York State cases in these public entity suits in New York. When I say carrier or claimant, somebody's got to properly perfect the rights under the General Municipal Law or Court of Claims Act, or else the claim is going to be barred. Um, that has to be done within 90 days. Possible disclosure issues, uh, something I want to put on everyone's radar. You know, there's required continuing disclosure under CPLR 3101, uh, and we might be required in a civil case to uh, reveal materials that would be privileged in a comp claim. For instance, surveillance of the claimant we're intending to raise fraud based upon. So if you're thinking about subrogating, I would definitely double check with the handling claims examiner whether any of the current evidence we have is being used for litigation in the comp claim and whether disclosure of it might be prejudicial to our efforts. All right, common actions and their statutes of limitations. So personal injury negligence, three years in New York, except for public entity claims, as we just discussed, you have to file a notice of claim or notice of intent within 90 days. You have a year and 90 days uh, in municipal claims or two years from the uh, date of accident in the court of claims cases against the state. Uh, two years in New Jersey, medical malpractice, we've got a couple dates in New York, 2.5 years from the date of the alleged malpractice, or conclusion of continuous treatment, highly relevant time determination in comp claims. One year after uh, the person knew or should have known of a foreign object, you know, something gets left in their body during surgery. Um, two years from learning of a cancer misdiagnosis or two years from the date of death. In New Jersey, it's two years uh, from the date of harm or the, from the date the harm arose or the alleged malpractice. This is usually going to be uh, two years from their discovery of uh, the potential malpractice. Legal malpractice is three years in New York, six years in New Jersey. Wrongful death is two years in both states from the date of death. Intentional torts, one year from wrongdoing in New York, two years from wrongdoing in New Jersey. Uh, just note that an intentional tort is going to be excluded from pretty much every type of coverage on earth. Um, the only thing that uh, might help you in these types of cases is when you file. It's number one, if the petitioner or claimant has liquid assets of their own. Um, for instance, we know that they just got a massive comp settlement. Um, or uh, if we want to try and drag a carrier in, because the duty to defend under a policy might be broader than the duty to indemnify, which would, is what would be excluded for the intentional tort. So, you know, this is falls under the category of make a big enough stink, hoping someone will give you money to go away. Do I have a case? 
All right. Uh, so in reviewing the facts, I want you guys to ask yourselves the following question. Is someone other than the claimant, a coworker, or the employer conceivably at fault? Can I point the finger at someone else? If so, uh, it's a good idea to get an SIU narrative out of the gate. You might have seen those in some of your files. Uh, they go out and they conduct interviews of the witnesses and take pictures and you know make preliminary findings about the parties involved and the potential happening of the accident. They're very, very helpful later on. In motor vehicle accident cases, sometimes you can uh, sort of telegraph liability just a little bit. Um, they'll make preliminary findings as apparent contributing factors or apparent contributing circumstances. Those are in the upper right of the police report, and there's uh, a key or a legend, whatever you want to call it, for uh, what each of the numbers represents. So that's a good way to check initially. Um, you can also find citations and tickets issued on the police report, another good indicator of what might have gone on. Uh, but I do want everyone to consider your issues of proof. Remember I said some employees just want to return to the status quo. Are we going to have their cooperation with discovery? Are they going to show up for depositions? If not, can we prove based on what we have? Is documentary evidence of the medical treatment and everything else enough? Uh, remember that we have to cooperate with discovery in full. So if they notice a deposition and we're unable to produce anyone for it, um, you know, and there's a subsequent motion to compel or motion to dismiss for failure to make discovery. If the employee's not showing up, we can subpoena their testimony, but uh, eventually we might run into some problems if we don't have their cooperation. So just think about, uh, are you going to be able to prove your case? All right, let's get into some of the fun part of this. Uh, so just a word on jury instructions. So model civil jury char charges in New Jersey can be found online. There's the link for anyone who's interested. New York's a little more covetous with their pattern jury instructions. Uh, they're more difficult to find online. Uh, I'm not gonna point anyone to anything illegal. I will say it is possible, <laughs> um, but they are widely available in legal research databases. Uh, why do these matter? So they set out the burdens of proof before a jury and they often contain citations with case examples and exceptions. Uh, they are the best place to start for your theory of the case. And so when we're prosecuting and proving a subrogation action, what we do is we go to the pattern jury instructions or model civil jury charges, and we slap that up on the board and say, how am I gonna get from point A to point B? Um, you always develop your theory of the case and start from there, and every action you take is building toward that. Common causes of action, number one, general negligence. So before we dive in here, a couple of caveats. I am not gonna go into every possible type of negligence there is, I'm just gonna hit some of the most common ones, otherwise you guys would be here all afternoon for this webinar. Um, I'm going to spare anyone that, but I'm happy to discuss whether you have a case based on your facts. Again, you can always just reach out via phone or email, uh, cmajor at loisllc.com. So number one, this is just gonna be sort of a broad overview. Number two, there are a, there's a staggering amount of these jury instructions that get increasingly specific. So if what's up here, you know, just a, these sort of general standards don't really feel like they apply to your case, rest assured that there probably is a very specific jury instruction that does. Uh, so we're just gonna be doing broad strokes for the time being in the interest of brevity. So uh, we have two colon 10. Uh, in New York, negligence is a lack of ordinary care, so that's failure to use that degree of care which a reasonably prudent person would have used under the same circumstances. Similar language in New Jersey, and you're going to hear this uh, reasonably prudent person standard a lot. Uh, failure to exercise in the given circumstances that degree of care for the safety of others 
which a person of ordinary prudence would exercise under similar circumstances. Both states hold the tortfeasor to a reasonably prudent person standard. Uh, in your negligence case, your standard one, you're going to have uh, four basic elements that uh, the defendants owed a duty, that they breached that duty, uh, that their breach of that duty was the uh, proximate and actual cause of the plaintiff's harm, or was the proximate cause of the plaintiff's harm, and that the plaintiff has provable harm slash damages. Um, reasonable care involves a foreseeability determination. Uh, so you're gonna determine how foreseeable the actual injury was. That plays into how reasonable uh, the defendant acted. Uh, what are our common defenses here that you've, I'm sure you've seen many a time in answers filed in civil cases? assumption of risk, act of God slash force majeure, uh, and our standard that applies basically in every context, comparative slash contributory negligence. Premises liability. Now we're getting into the fun stuff. So uh, slip and trip and fall cases. We have PJI 2 colon 90 in New York. Uh, the owner slash possessor has a duty to use reasonable care to keep premises in reasonably safe condition uh, for the protection of all persons whose presence is reasonably foreseeable. New Jersey 5 colon 20 F, the extent of the duty owned depends upon invitee, licensee, or trespasser status. Uh, so that's the relationship of the parties actually plays into the liability determination. Uh, licensee in New Jersey is a person who has a right to enter or remain by consent of the possessor. They're not invited, but their presence is tolerated. Um, it, for these, you have a duty to warn or make reasonably safe known hazardous conditions. Uh, an invitee is a person who's permitted to enter or remain uh, for a purpose of the owner slash occupier. So they enter by express or implied invitation. A little bit of a stronger duty owed here. You have to exercise reasonable care for the invitee's safety. Uh, and this adds a uh, should have known standard. It's not just enough to know of the potential hazard. Premises liability continued. Uh, New York has abandoned those designations. They used to have them too, that licensee, invitee, trespasser thing. Um, they have a general duty to maintain safe conditions measured by the foreseeability of a visitor on the property. You have to prove the premises were not reasonably safe, the defendant was uh, negligent in not keeping the premises reasonably safe, and that their negligence in allowing the unsafe condition to exist was a substantial factor in causing the plaintiff's injury. So if you remember the elements of negligence I pointed out before, duty, breach, causation, harm, this is essentially another recitation of that. Um, watch out for publicly owned property, such as sidewalks. We can really get into the weeds there, but um, suffice to say, if you're making a pothole claim against the city of New York, you're dealing with the municipal law, first of all, and you, they need to have prior actual notice of it. Then you're getting into the Big Apple Pothole Corporation and maps of potholes and you know, Freedom of Information Act requests from the Department of Transportation, uh, it can get particularly hairy. And there are statutes for remediating snow and who actually is responsible for maintaining the sidewalk. That's why there's municipal liability attorneys that handle literally just this. Um, common defenses, open and obvious defect, comparative and contributory negligence, trivial defect as in how could this person have possibly tripped and fell over this, uh, ownership and responsibility for maintenance. In other words, not my property, it's that guy's problem. Or I hired somebody to take care of this and they didn't do it. Premises liability continued. Foreign substances are slip and fall cases. So, um, usual standard applies that we have for premises liability in New York. Additional considerations based on the nature of claim. 
Is it alleged that the defendant created the condition? Is it alleged that the defendant did not create it but failed to correct it? Is it alleged that there was a failure to warn? Um, we have these additional defenses in slip and fall cases, storm in progress, uh, as in it's continuing to rain. How could you possibly remediate a wet floor when people are constantly tracking in rain? Uh, and latent defect offenses, that's going to mostly apply in the black ice context. Um, the general rule is the longer there was a dangerous condition, the more likely it is that someone was negligent. And you can tack onto that, the more open and obvious that dangerous condition, the more likely it is someone was negligent. Um, consider factors such as uh, whether the dangerous condition existed, actual and constructive notice, efforts to warn and remediate, etc. Uh, in addition to notice, you're usually going to need negligent inaction or action that creates or exacerbates the hazard. So either they fail to remediate or, you know, in the snow shoveling context, you shoveled snow and thus created a patch of ice, or you shoveled snow onto the sidewalk and shoveling your driveway. Uh, that's the sort of context we're looking at there. Motor vehicle accidents, we'll go into these very quickly because they can get quite hairy. Um, in New York, duty to operate the vehicle with reasonable care, there's that word again, taking into account actual and potential dangers existing from weather, road, traffic, and other conditions. So you'll notice in pleadings uh, for motor vehicle accident cases in New York, uh, many of the plaintiff's complaints will make these exact allegations. You'll see this language in the complaint. Uh, requires that the driver maintain a reasonably safe rate of speed that they have the vehicle under proper control, that they keep a proper, proper lookout, that they see and be aware of what there was to be seen and use reasonable care to avoid an accident. You'll see pleadings uh, that the defendant failed to do each one of those in motor vehicle accident case complaints. Uh, New Jersey charge, uh, duty to exercise for safety of others, that degree of care, precaution and vigilance, which a reasonably prudent person would exercise under similar circumstances. Again, just a regurgitation of the general negligence standard. Uh, Common defenses here, verbal threshold in New Jersey, Article 51 in New York, that's our 50K carve out. Last clear chance, the theory that some the defendant could have avoided the accident and failed to do so, uh, and comparative and contributory negligence. Um, I want you guys to keep an eye out for the opportunity to borrow statutes to prove your case. What do I mean by that? Everyone knows that running a red light is wrong, right? We know it's illegal. Uh, in some instances, you can actually borrow the a violation of a statute as proof of your negligence. It depends upon the facts, it depends upon the statute, it depends upon the defendant's actions, but you can actually borrow statutes or regulations to prove your case in some instances. All right, this is the last one we're gonna touch on for today, uh, product liability. Again, I am happy to discuss any other types of actions such as legal or medical malpractice if you ever wanna reach out and, and discuss them. Um, so we have design defects, manufacturing defects, and information slash warning defects. Design defects. There was a safer design that the uh, manufacturer could have produced, you know, without great expense or difficulty. Uh, the, the example to use here is, you know, shortening the gap between bars on a baby's crib. You know, the baby's head's not going to get stuck, and it's something you can reasonably easily do. Manufacturing defects, think of that as the one in a million. Everything normally comes off the product line working. This one didn't. Uh, and because it didn't, uh, somebody got hurt. Information slash warning. You know, if you stick your finger here, you will probably lose your finger when we turn this buzzsaw on. Uh, if they don't have that warning on there and someone loses their finger as a result, well, that's a, a defect in warning. 
once again, foreseeability plays a significant role, particularly with foreseeable use. The example I like to use here is uh, an intended use of a chair is sitting. Many of us also use a chair to stand up and change a light bulb. So if the use of it was foreseeable, uh, the defendant is potentially on the hook still. In New York, we have a duty to use reasonable care in manufacture such that it will be reasonably safe for its intended or foreseeable uses. Uh, you can potentially get the seller, the distributor, the manufacturer, anyone in that production chain on the hook here. Uh, reasonable care is the degree of care that a reasonably prudent manufacturer would use in making, inspecting, and testing the materials or product. New Jersey is a little more interesting. So we have a duty to make or sell a product that is reasonably safe, um, suitable and safe for intended or reasonably, I'm sorry, fit suitable and safe for intended or reasonably foreseeable uses. So uh, New Jersey has something called the Product Liability Act, and this can actually end up imposing strict liability without proof of negligence if you're able to establish that one of those defects, design, manufacturing, or warning, actually existed. All right, let's get into some takeaways. Number one, the employee may not always want to sue. If you're hanging your hat on the employee suing and getting your lien reimbursed, uh, you are opening yourself up for potential trouble, and you're potentially missing out on uh, an extensive reimbursement. Two, we may sometimes have more incentive than the employee does to sue and sometimes greater rights. So in a verbal threshold case, they're not gonna sue because their claim is barred. We're not held to that in New Jersey. Or you know, maybe the damages are only gonna reach $10,000. Well, we don't care. We wanna get reimbursed that $10,000. We're not looking at an attorney's fee in this instance. So uh, we may sometimes have more incentive and we may actually be able to file where the petitioner claimant couldn't. Investigate the facts early. Ask if someone else could be at fault. If so, can, uh, consider that SIU narrative that I mentioned earlier. Uh, you can check out the facts in the medical reports and the pleadings, uh, really get an idea of where the case is at, which gets us to the next one. Develop your theory of the case uh, using jury instructions slash charges. Put that up on the board and figure out how you're going to get it from point A to point B. Uh, properly preserve your rights with the requisite notice, uh, section 29.2 or section 40F, the one year letter, 30 days notice in New York, 10 days written demand in New Jersey. And watch out for pitfalls, municipal liability uh, or potential defenses or maybe a lack of proofs. Uh, any of those potential issues, statutes of limitations, you want to keep an eye out on them uh, from the outset of your case. So let's see if we have any questions. Bear with me, I have to open up the GoToWebinar thing. Here we go. Ah. Uh, what was the case law against verbal threshold language in New Jersey? Uh, that is New Jersey Transit Corp. Uh, sorry, let me go back to the, so you guys can see me again. That is New Jersey, New Jersey Transit Corp. ASO Mercogliano versus Sanchez. It's an appellate division decision that comes out in 2018. And then thanks to a divided Supreme Court actually ends up getting affirmed at the Supreme Court level. So that is still good law. Uh, if you're interested in the policy rationale, it's actually quite fascinating. Uh, they basically say that um, the Workers' Compensation Act is separate and distinct from the Automobile Insurance Cost Reduction Act, and therefore we're not uh, subject to the verbal threshold. The 
uh, logical hoops they go through to get there are quite interesting, but uh, it's the latest in a long line of cases, and uh, we have been very successful in uh, recovering in verbal threshold cases. All righty. Um, I think that's going to do it for the questions. So I would like to thank everyone for attending. Uh, hope you'll tune in next month. And just as a uh, brief reminder, we got a special webinar tomorrow on a big uh, Lois LLC win on workers' comp exclusivity in New York in a case where there was potentially millions of dollars at stake. That's tomorrow at 1 p.m., July 12th. So I uh, hope you'll tune in and I'll see you there. Thanks, guys.